please. Please, I can't breathe. Please, man. Bye now. By now, most people have seen this disturbing video. It shows George Floyd, an unarmed black man, dying at the hands of a Minnesota police officer. Within a week and a half, the four officers involved were fired and charged. Scenes like this playing out across the country. I can't watch no more of this. I'm sorry, but like, if I see one more name of a, another brother, Dad, like, I'm gonna lose it. Like, I'm really gonna lose my mind. Black Lives Matter, that's the, that's the message. In some places, those protests took a violent turn. The sun has gone down here in New York City, and there are clearly different groups that are out here facing off with police. If a city or state refuses to take the actions that are necessary to defend the life and property of their residents, then I will deploy the United States military and quickly solve the problem for them. And an investigation now underway after an NYPD patrol car drove into a crowd behind a barricade. I am dispatching thousands and thousands of heavily armed soldiers, military personnel, and law enforcement officers to stop the rioting, looting, vandalism, assaults, and the wanton destruction of property some of which we saw right here in San Antonio. Until we realize that black lives are important, just as important as any other life, then no, no other lives matter. These are the sights and scenes in downtown San Antonio tonight. Sky 12 over that location. Uh, you can see several police officers in the streets after protesters had taken over the streets. But the protests and calls for justice have been largely peaceful, and those in power are now listening. I have a black son. I have a black father. I have a white face and a black voice. And you're going to hear it. I'm not going nowhere. We all make mistakes. There are going to be people out there who will, who will be with you who will make mistakes. There are going to be people on my side who maybe who will wear a uniform that might make mistakes. But let's forgive that and hold me accountable for it. Because I'm the mayor of this damn city and we're going to make change together, okay? The killing of George Floyd was the tipping point, but protests and tensions weren't born overnight. Thanks for joining us for KSAT Explains. I'm Myra Arthur. The topic of racial inequality is at the forefront in every corner of this country right now. It might make you feel uncomfortable or sad or angry or helpless. There are so many emotions at play. And when it comes to racial inequality, there are a lot of factors and history at play too. It is a complicated, nuanced topic, and we realize we won't be able to talk about every aspect of it in one show but we want to start somewhere. Throughout the show, we'll take a look at the history of protest culture, the history of the Black Lives Matter movement, how this historic moment is playing out right here in our city, and how this is a topic that is extraordinarily personal for so many people. 
the black man is feared. Um, no matter what he does, where he works, where he lives, all walks of life, he is feared. And I've had experiences to where I've been riding through a neighborhood and been pulled over because I don't look like I belong there. A lot of us have been stopped for crazy reasons uh, along the way that didn't make any sense. Me and my dad and my mom have had conversations about some of the different things going on and everything you know, minorities have to deal with. Oh, you talk too articulately to be black, or oh, you're too smart to be black. So hearing people joke is, you know, I'm in a gang, or, you know, walking down the street and uh, people and white people not wanting to actually walk across by me, you know, they cross the street, you know, they don't actually want to walk right past where I am. And I think it's, some of those subtle things that hurt the most. I had a gift card and the clerk looks at me and goes, is this good? And I go, is my card good? Why are you asking if my card was good? Well, I've been in a store where I'm being followed around by a salesperson. It's like, I'm not stealing. I'm, I have money. If I didn't, I wouldn't be in. Because sometimes you, you internalize it to a, in a sense where it's like, you almost tell yourself that it was your fault or something, that you did something wrong or something like that. It's real. I mean, you know, um, people that don't have to experience that every day, they'll never understand. What is it about our skin color that makes people not trust us? I should not have to say, just because I'm black doesn't mean I don't have a brain. I'm not getting ready to rob you. Always was brought up that if anybody calls you a slang term, they call you boy, they call you <laughs> they call you anything derogatory, like you just be quiet because you already know their mindset. You can check all the boxes for being smart, um, being articulate with your words, not getting in trouble, not stirring a pot on things, and it, it didn't matter that night. All that mattered was that I was black in a car. What is so What's so scary about our skin color? Why does everyone hate us because of our skin? We're going to be hearing more personal stories to give this issue some perspective throughout this entire show. But first, we want to take a look at how the protests have played out right here in our own city since the death of George Floyd on Memorial Day. The day after Floyd's death in police custody, protests began in Minneapolis. But it wasn't until that Saturday that we saw protesting in San Antonio. Thousands of people showed up at that first protest. And even though there was some chaos and some vandalism at the end of that night, the demonstrations were overwhelmingly peaceful. We know that this goes on all over the country. So this is our way of showing how we support that injustice is wrong. We are here to ensure the right of the folks who are here to protest. We're here to ensure that right uh, is enforced. Uh, we want them to exercise their First Amendment rights. Protests continued peacefully over the next couple of days, but then late on Tuesday, San Antonio police used projectiles that hit both protesters and members of the media. San Antonio police say they did what they had to do. Some members of the media were also hit with the projectiles. A reporter tweeting a question to the mayor asking if he was okay with this. He responded, no, I'm not. <laughs> 
This is new video just into the KSAT 12 newsroom from last night's unrest in San Antonio, leading law enforcement to react with pepper bombs and wooden projectiles. Since then, Police Chief William McManus says that going forward, the order for officers to use crowd dispersal weapons will come only from him. Some people have expressed surprise at the number of people who have participated in recent protests. But civil rights experts say there is a rich history of fighting for equality here in San Antonio. Now, the NAACP in San Antonio was chartered in 1918. So it's been around for over 100 years working on these issues to deal with equal rights, equal employment, equal educational opportunities. We're not where we need to be. Dr. Gregory Hudspeth has been the NAACP San Antonio chapter president since November 2018, but his involvement in local civil rights protests dates back decades. My early, earliest memory of the civil rights movement here in San Antonio, which I was involved in, was at, we had a grocery store here, Handy Andy, and the owner of Handy Andy stated that he would not permit a black person to count his money. So we established a picket line around Handy Andy. Hudspeth remembers the events leading up to the desegregation of downtown lunch counters back in 1960. Many of us who were in, living in San Antonio and attended school in San Antonio, we rode the bus to our various high schools, but we all met up in front of the Woolsworth building at that lunch counter. And we had one of the members of the NAACP to write a letter to the businesses downtown, the lunch counters downtown, asking them to integrate. When the NAACP gave business leaders an ultimatum to either face sit-in demonstrations or allow integration, many chose to integrate. These images from UTSA's special collections, which include stills from the San Antonio Express News and San Antonio Light, shows residents throughout the years involved in more demonstrations calling for equality. Here's a look at NAACP members awaiting President John F. Kennedy at the airport back in 1963. This snapshot shows local workers joining the Rio Grande Valley farm workers march to Austin when it stopped here in San Antonio in 1966. Fast forward to today. San Antonio's Martin Luther King Jr. Day March is billed as one of the largest in the entire country. And the Cesar E. Chavez March for Justice has been going on for more than two decades. It was only canceled this year because of the pandemic. But despite this history, many were still surprised at the turnout of the protests in the wake of George Floyd's death. San Antonio doesn't have the, the greatest protest history, but San Antonio has a great civil rights history. And that civil rights history uh, spans across the brown community, the Hispanic community. There's been many times when civil rights activists from the Hispanic community and from the black community have joined hands. And as far as the recent protests, experts say that turnout is a sign things are changing in San Antonio. The other day I noticed five or six different rallies going on in different parts of the city where some of them were small as 50 and somewhere as large as 500. That is a big difference, and I think that makes it a game changer. If you can't compare San Antonio's past protest culture with what we have now, there's no comparison. It's much greater. It's been more than six years since Marquise Jones was shot and killed by a San Antonio police officer. Since that moment, Jones' family has fought for justice and to keep his memory alive. RJ Marquez spoke with Jones' aunt about the pain her family has carried 
and how these new protests have renewed their fight. Marquise Jones was 23 years old when he was killed. He was a loving kid. He was a clown of the family, so um, the dancers, he was a jokester. He was just an all-around all fun kid and as an adult also. Debbie Bush says her nephew played basketball at Stevens High School where he graduated from, but his passion was music. He loved basketball. He was a basketball player. And then he got into wanting to be a rapper. <laughs> Yeah. as all kids at that time wanted to do, want to be. That's what he was studying at Northwest Vista College at the time of his death. Jones was shot in February of 2014 by off-duty SAPD officer Robert Encina. He was a passenger in a car that was involved in a fender bender in the drive through of Achachos on the northeast side. Encina was working security at the restaurant and tried to detain the driver when he said Jones got out of the car and displayed a gun. Encina shot Jones, claiming self-defense. Jones tried to run away but collapsed and died. A gun was found at the scene, but police never established if it was Jones's weapon. An internal investigation determined that Encina was justified in his use of force, and a Bear County jury voted not to indict him. Bush says her nephew was not without his faults, but he didn't deserve to die. He kind of lost his footing, um, but then when his daughter was born, um, he decided that he needed to straighten up um, and get his life right. Um, to be there for her. Um, and unfortunately, his life was cut short when she was only three months old. Jones's daughter is now six years old. With only pictures and videos left to remember him by, she often asks about her dad. She's almost like a replica because she turned her face a certain kind of way or she fixed her mouth and she looks just like him. You know, so um, as she's getting older, she's starting to understand um, what happened. We just let her know her daddy loved her very much. In 2017, Jones's family filed a wrongful death lawsuit, but a jury cleared the city of San Antonio and Encina. Bush says it's taken a toll on their family, but the killing of George Floyd renewed their calls for justice for her nephew and two other black men recently killed by police officers in San Antonio, Charles Roundtree and Anthony Scott. I lost some momentum um, over the last two, maybe two years because it, it just got hard and and it just got tedious and no one was listening. Um, but with what's going on in our country today, it's picked up, this case has picked up a lot of momentum. Bush says while this new momentum has given her family hope that one day the case will be reopened, she knows her family will never be whole again. And I wish he was here so he could see how beautiful his daughter and how smart she is and how much he is like him. All of us have done things in our lives that we we regret. There is no way we can fix it. I wish he was here. You don't know the pain we feel. The struggle for racial justice is nothing new, but a lot of people we've talked to say that this moment feels different. We ask them why. And it dawned on me that from all of the protests from like 1954 to the present, which had been some of the major ones, I was alive. So all of these protests that have occurred, they've occurred during different time periods in my life. Carla Broadus has been alive to witness major historic events in America's civil rights history. Brown versus Board of Education, that impacted me and my education. The Emmett Till, protest. I was a student 
1957, the Little Rock Nine. I was a student. Go all the way forward to Vietnam. I was a college student. I was a high school and college student. As a child, Dr. Martin Luther King's church was one block from my family's church in Atlanta. And she says this particular moment in history feels familiar. As I was living those moments, I'm feeling the same. And I haven't felt, I'll have to be honest, I haven't felt this angry about everything that's going on in our society right now toward African-Americans. She's not alone. So what we're watching now and what we're witnessing, we're witnessing a change. The times are changing and the world's watching and there's a lot of pressure being placed on the United States to do something differently than they've done in the past. We're looking at a long, long history of pain, of people being abused. And then just like anything else, there's a last straw. This was the straw that broke the camel's back, if you want to say it that way. We, we had Breonna Taylor, we had Ahmaud, we had George Floyd. The fact that George Floyd was killed in the middle of a global pandemic has been repeatedly pointed to as a possible factor that made this moment a tipping point. Everybody's been also kept in the house because of the coronavirus. People that maybe wouldn't normally be watching all the news channels all day long are at home doing so. And I've heard people say this over and over again. If I had been at work, I might not have saw that knee to the neck. It's historic. It's almost a perfect storm where we, I think we can see the opportunities to change uh, this, this system of, of, of policing uh, in this country. So now the world is actually seeing what is happening to the Black community with police. Not only are more people tuned into the news at this time, but data shows that racial and ethnic minority groups are being disproportionately affected by COVID-19. Here in San Antonio, as of June 14th, Black San Antonians made up 19.3% of deaths. They make up just 7% of our total population. This backs up a pattern being seen nationwide. An April analysis by the Associated Press shows nearly a third of those who have died from COVID-19 complications in the U.S. are Black. There's a lot of pain and anger that people are dealing with right now, but there also seems to be some hope. It seems uh, to me that we have a concerted effort to keep it going, that there's a concerted effort not to give up. So that obviously generates the kind of hope that people need to feel that something can actually be changed. You know, you have all these people who, you know, are out here protesting and demanding for change. And I think that's the biggest thing you can hope for that comes from the protests, you know, that people in charge, lawmakers, you know, can sit down and say, okay, this is a problem across the board. You know, there's all these people, not just in San Antonio, but across the nation who feel this way. And how can we start to implement things and change things to kind of fix our broken system? When it comes to policing, the push for change is raw and real for many across America right now. So now the question becomes, what could that change look like? It all depends on your idea of a solution. Three movements have made their way to the forefront. The eight can't wait campaign, defunding police and abolishing police. Just as it sounds, abolishing police means getting rid of police departments and coming up with a different way to protect and serve. The activist group Critical Resistance, a group outspoken against many common policing tactics, describes the move as a push to, quote, dismantle the systems of policing 
and says it, quote, works to create viable alternatives in our communities, end quote. In Minneapolis, where George Floyd was killed, the city council voted to disband its police force. The Associated Press reports that would not be a first. According to the AP, it happened in Camden, New Jersey in 2012 when crime was surging. That police department was replaced with a new force that covered the local county. The AP has also reported that in 2000, the city of Compton, California made a similar move. Then there's the effort to defund the police. This push is a bit murkier, with some supporters urging city leaders to strip away all funds from departments, effectively getting rid of them. But then there are those who want money to be reallocated to other services so that the authority of police doesn't have as wide a reach. Listen to SAPD Chief William McManus explain his understanding. I've read a lot of different um, um, iterations of defunding the police. The one I read uh, most recently was that uh, things that police are doing that uh, are not typically uh, responsibilities of law enforcement, such as dealing with the mentally ill, dealing with the homeless. I think the idea that that was expressed in the article I just read was that the money that funds the police to deal with those those particular areas would be directed to other more appropriate agencies to deal with. The Eight Can't Wait campaign is focused on specific reforms. It urges police departments to adopt or ban eight tactics, banning chokeholds and strangleholds, requiring de-escalation and warnings before an officer shoots, requiring an officer to use all other options before resorting to deadly force, mandating an officer intervene if another officer is using excessive force, ban shooting at moving cars, create a force continuum that restricts the most severe use of force and creates clear policies on each type of police weapon and tactic, and require comprehensive reporting every time an officer uses force. According to 8can'twait.org, San Antonio has four of these tactics in place, but Chief McManus has said his department has all eight in place, but the discrepancy may be in the exact wording used in SAPD's policies. McManus has signaled he's willing to make changes to make those policies fall in line with the 8 Can't Wait campaign. A local man says he was a college student in the early 2000s when he had an encounter with a police officer that quickly became very violent. Charles Davis is now the UTSA Assistant Athletics Director of Creative Services and recently shared his story publicly with San Antonio Magazine for the first time. He also talked to us about why he decided now was the time to come forward. Davis says it all started when he was pulled over while driving back to campus from Wimberley. I asked the officer, you know, what am I being pulled over for? Um, and he tells me I fit the description of a burglar in the area. I'm, I'm asking, what does the guy look like? I want that answer. You know, what does he look like? And he finally tells me, he's like, he looks like you. You know, he looks like an Once I heard those words, I was like, oh, this isn't gonna be a good situation for me. He asked me to get out of the car. I may have taken two steps out of my car before he had already grabbed me and slammed my face into my the hood of my car, broke my glasses. I end up, you know, just, trying to stay as quiet as I can. Talking to me, he's hit me already two or three times with his nightstick. I have a couple of my teeth have already flown out. And then I see another cop car start to drive up. The one that hit me, it's basically tells the guy like, oh, I got this, you know, and then he drives off and leaves. But before that, when the officer was walking up, 
I remember, like, I'll never forget that feeling. Like, he took his gun out of his holster, shoved it in my ribs, and he told me when that guy was walking up, he told me, if you say the word about any of this, I'm going to the address on your driver's license and I'm killing everybody there. Then when I'm done with him, I'm coming back after you. He hit me a couple more times to the point where now I've I'm passed out unconscious in the ditch. I woke up maybe like an hour and a half later. My car's been ransacked. I go in my car, I grab a bag out of my car, put my teeth in it. I start the process of slowly driving to the hospital because I can't see. My glasses are broken. I was terrified I was going to get pulled over again. I walk into the emergency room. I just tell them that I got uh, in a car accident. Basically, they patch me up, ask me if I want to stay overnight. I tell them no, and I go back, back to my dorm room, and I just locked myself in my dorm room and just cried. I didn't tell anybody. I literally was in my room for about a week. To this day, I mean, I have panic attacks when I see or hear lights. If I get pulled over, some people could say I could be completely justified by hating law enforcement or something like that, but I'll, I'll never think that way. You know, I, I know that this wasn't an issue of just law enforcement as a whole. This was an issue of an individual who felt like he was above the law and could do what he wanted based on hatred of a race. My name is Daphne Gray. My name is Alexis Page. My name is Dominic Lawrence. My name is Devin Clark. My name is Kevin Heisen. My name is Katrina Weber, and I've, uh, I'm a reporter, I think. <laughs> I think now more than ever, it's evident that it's important to have diversity in the newsroom. You can only empathize so much. Sometimes you need people who understand. I think that as a black woman, I bring a different uh, view of the world. Having a diverse newsroom, it, it forms a conversation inside of the newsroom, more education inside the newsroom. I think it helps with people in terms of empathy because you have that kind of attachment to the community. It doesn't even have to be a racial thing. It can be an economic status. It can be an able body thing. It could be people who've had some kind of disadvantage in their life. It is best that those people can tell sometimes the best stories. If someone's never been discriminated against, I don't expect them to understand discrimination. But if you sit there, if you, if you sit down with them and actually bring out the history books and talk to them about how we got here to this point, then I think that can go a long way. I think this is probably the first time in a while since these kind of issues have been happening that I can see a little light at the tunnel. And it's because this time around, I've seen people speak up. I'm right here at Travis Park, where a beautiful memorial was built in honor of George Floyd. But I also want to note that a group of peaceful protesters were here, just a bunch of people of all races in a powerful demonstration. All of these people that were gathered around uh, the memorial they had set up at Travis Park were laying flat on the ground. And then they started chanting, I can't breathe, I can't breathe for nine straight minutes. And I tell you, it echoed downtown. And that right there, that's the way you do it. I think being firm but peaceful uh, gets the message across louder and more powerful than anything you could possibly do. It made me feel good. Uh, it made me, you know, proud to be a black man here in San Antonio, in America. We've been, you know, 
locked up, put away, whatever it may be. But to see the protests going on, that was a huge thing for me. It made me feel good. It made me proud to be a black man. Now seems like the time where we can get together and, and have these conversations, these dialogues, and try to affect some change. I know that you know racism is a thing that has been with this country since its inception, so I don't really know how we uproot this. But this is definitely the time to try to put our heads together and have some conversations. Throughout this show, we've heard a lot of personal stories about lived experiences, and we want to end this episode with this one. Jay Sibley, a local high school student, 15 years old, who recently penned an essay on KSAT.com reflecting on what he's learned watching what's going on in the world around him. Started with uh, Ahmaud Arbery, and then, you know, of course, the story of Breonna Taylor was mentioned, and Christian Cooper, and then you had the incident with George Floyd, and it was just, it was all tough to deal with. I wanted to be able to share how different you know, what minorities face growing up. There's a phrase we use in my house. You have to work twice as hard to get half of what they have. It sums up the unfair reality that minorities have to work harder than others to reach the same heights. It's a truth minorities in America have to wake up ready to face every day. Like most Americans, I hold the we the people at the beginning of the Constitution with reverence. The iconic phrase is something I used to view with awe when I was younger. I believe America is the utopia that its founders wrote about. As I've gotten older and now at 15, some of the naivety has faded away. I can view this phrase with clearer eyes. These unalienable rights spoken of in the Constitution really only applied as long as you wielded some sort of influence. The idea that all men were created equal held true as long as your skin color wasn't too dark. Then you were only three-fifths of a person. We the people wasn't something that encompassed the entirety of the American population, but I hope that at some point it will. What I've learned during this time is that I'm committed to work twice as hard, despite the challenges, starting with using my voice and knowledge in order to start to change the inequity and injustice still alive and well around me. My hope is that while I do this work, others will do the work of listening, learning, and getting to know people that are different from them. Then we can all learn that it's a lot harder to hate up close.